Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Ah, 9-11 is in a couple of days. I'm Robert Evans. This is It Could Happen Here, a podcast about 9-11. Um, well, as as Garrison said in the intro that we're not using, it's about things falling apart. And yes. boy, did that happen on 9-11. Two, two, two things that fell apart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this was originally going to be a slightly cruder episode than it wound up being. But I'm, I'm just going to delve into the script and uh, Chris Garrison, you guys just buckle in because the reason I have you both as guests on this is that you are both too young to remember nine. That's not true. I remember nine. I remember. That's a it. lie. Wait, I remember. How old were you like four? Uh, how old was I? Yeah, I was four. But I, I remember my mom like so she she was trying to explain the Pentagon, right? Mm-hmm. And so. She has like a coaster on the ground and she's making an airplane with her hand. Is this going into... <laughs> anyway, so as I said, neither of you properly remember 9-11. I, I don't remember 9-11. I, I was at the age where every mem- like moment of it is burnt into my, into my brain, as is the reaction. So I wanted you both on this because we're going to talk about how 9-11 kind of became a, a, a cult um, and yes. how to maybe how to maybe deal with that. And then we'll be chatting about Glenn Beck's 9-12 project, which is something oh, I'm sure God. neither of you are very familiar with. Now, in its sixth season, the popular cartoon South Park ran an episode in which Jared Fogle, who was at that point just a subway spokesman and not a convicted child molester, oh, came to town and announced the start of a new program to give everyone AIDS. Now, he was talking about dietitians and personal trainers to help people lose weight, but everybody heard AIDS, the disease, which led to yeah. wacky hijinks. That's the episode. It ends when everyone realizes they'd misunderstood Fogle and they all laugh. Uh, this leads them to realize that AIDS is finally funny because things that are tragic become funny exactly 22.3 years after they occur. That's the joke in the episode and went on to become a minor little internet joke that like, you know, once you hit that 22 year point, you can laugh about something tragic. We are now at like 21 years and change since September 11th, 2001. And I think if we're all honest, most of us can admit that we've laughed at a lot of 9-11 jokes. We're recording this the day the queen died and people are like photoshopping her face to be the Twin Towers. And it's, it's so good. It's quite a time on the old internet. Now, I think the first, I think the hardest, at least, that I ever laughed at a 9-11 joke, I'm sure it's not the first time, was this picture of Trump Tower that was t- posted to Twitter, like, right 
right after he got inaugurated with the text, George Bush, do you thing? Um, <laughs> it's still an excellent 9-11 joke. Now, the first person with any kind of platform to make a 9-11 joke was the recently deceased comedian Gilbert Gottfried. On September 29th, 2001, he took part in a roast of Hugh Hefner at the New York Friars Club. And I'm going to play you the audio of that right now. I have to catch a flight to California. I can't get a direct flight. They said they have to stop at the Empire State Building first. Very tame. Very yeah, tame joke. Ex- extremely tame joke. Honestly, not a great joke. Um, but it, it went on to, it was, it's probably like one, maybe the most famous in like kind of stand-up history, like bombs. Um, Gottfried said, himself said that he lost the audience more than anyone else ever has. Um, I think it caused some career problems for him. Um, he later and said this that was he, only like a few weeks after this, this was days after. So this is at the Friars Club roast of Hugh Hefner on September 29th. Is this, is this where too soon is from? Um, well, yeah, this I mean, I don't I don't know that it originated there, but this was the response to him. Um, and I think it, it's the first time I ever recall hearing someone say that. Godfrey said that, like, the reason he decided to tell a joke this close to 9-11 was that he was personally offended by the fact that anything could be too soon to make a joke about. Um, one of the things that's interesting about this, a little side thing, is that, like, after bombing and getting shouted at by the audience, Godfrey, like, decided to get them back by telling a particularly long and foul version of The Aristocrats, which is a, a meta joke about jokes primarily anyway um it's basically just being as foul-mouthed as you can possibly be to an audience um and that that audio has been lost to time apparently but boy uh you can watch a fun documentary about the aristocrats uh, if you want to learn more about that now i i think the first good actual comedy bit about 9-11 came out a little bit after this this was about two weeks after the day and a couple of months later at like the three-month point south park season five aired uh, and they ran an episode about 9-11. Um, it has been criticized, rightly so, because there's some kind of racist bits of humor in there. Um, yeah, that's not surprising. <laughs> that's not surprising. Um, that said, it's also kind of a valuable snapshot of history. For one thing, the a huge part of the episode is just kind of like the Afghan child counterparts to the main characters in the show walking around their town as everyone is murdered by U.S. airstrikes. Um, so it's it is not like the it 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 stands kind of in opposition to sort of the kind of like bootlicking responses you got for for some context the show The West Wing which is the favorite show of everybody who runs anything in politics right now ran an emergency 9/11 episode like a couple of weeks after the attack which was the kind of turnaround you didn't do in TV at that point in time so yeah, they put no. in a, a ton of effort to have this special 9/11 episode of The West Wing um that number 1 in the alternate West Wing universe there's no 9/11 there's like some vague like there's basically basically the episode focuses on like a bunch of kids on a tour getting stuck in the White House because it locks down because some vague terrorist attack thing happens in a, a fake country they made up so when yeah. the West Wing needed to talk about Muslims. Um, and kind of like the breakout piece of this, well, there's two breakouts. One of them is a very racist retelling of the story of Isaac and Ishmael that explains like why Muslims are always so angry all the time. Um, and then the White House press lady, C.J. Craig, goes on a rant about how awesome the intelligence uh, apparatuses and how like what good people uh, CIA agents are and how oh, like boy. the best thing to do for politics sometimes is to have a, a a guy dressed as a waiter murder somebody with a silenced pistol like it was out of its mind unhinged that's the fucking like so the fact that South Park does an episode that's like yeah we're gonna murder a bunch of people in Afghanistan for no reason is like not a not a bad response not a bad thing to recognize about that day um, the other things that are like pretty good uh, or pretty I think meaningful sort of bits in that episode it, it opens with all of the kids at the bus stop wearing gas masks as they stand in line for the bus there's a piece in that episode that kind of sticks with me today still um, that I'm gonna play for you guys. Remember when life used to be simple and cool? Not really. 
I don't know. I always found that bit fun. So when the school bus arrives, there's a cop on it searching bags and confiscating items that might be used as weapons. The school classroom doors are reinforced with a massive military grade lock, uh, which resonated more in a time when like school shootings weren't a constant thing. Um, and it, it kind of hit me because you know, when this episode came out and I watched it when it came out, I was at middle school, uh, Clark Middle School in Plano, Texas. And on 9-11 and 9-12, the attacks were like the only topic of discussion uh, that anyone had. And I have this vivid memory of a couple of girls in my U.S. history class weeping because they were scared that Al Qaeda was coming for our schools next. Um, yes. Like this was a, a very real worry for kids that I grew up with. A school um, in what, like Midland, Texas, or something? No, it was in Dia. It's a big school, but like I don't, I'm certain that fucking Osama bin Laden had never heard the name Plano, Texas. Let did, alone did you have the. Do you have the thing with like, anytime a plane was like going down, people would point at it and be like, "Oh my god." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that was definitely a meme. And there was, you know, one of the most famous ones was uh, this this uh, video called Triumph.avi that started to spread on the Something Awful forums that was just footage of the September 11th attacks set to yakety sacks. Um, and again, these were all kind of the, the, the comedy that, that, you know, that South Park put out here and that you saw in stuff like the Triumph video were reactions to how fucking seriously everybody else took 9-11, right? Like, I have to I have to point out that, like, watching an episode like this or watching something like Trump felt, like, legitimately transgressive in the days and weeks after 9-11 because it was kind of a, as we'll talk about, had turned into kind of like a secular cult. Um, and I think people who were just a few years old then uh, or born after 9-11 missed this part of 9-11. Um, I think you inherited the wars and the intrusions on civil liberties and the creeping fascism, but not the derangement by terror that had preceded it. Like, everybody's permanently deranged from 9-11, but I, you didn't really get to know people before that kind of happened and drove a lot of them mad. As a kid, it was like a strange and exciting and scary moment. But I, I think my parents and I think the people who were kind of in their age range um, completely lost their minds. And oddly, that, that South Park episode has kind of the best depiction of that too. There's a scene in which uh, Stan, who's one of the main characters, they're all like middle school kids, walks into his house and sees his mom like lying on the couch, staring blankly ahead. Um, and just like weeping, she's surrounded by tissues. She's been crying for days. Um, and as her husband says, she's just been watching CNN for like the last eight weeks straight. And the, the image of her just kind of like lying on the couch, staring at the TV is I, I can remember every adult that I knew as a kid doing that. And it, it, it really did go on for days. Like people moved around as if they were like in kind of a shocked stupor. I'm sure there's places where this wasn't the case. Um, but for my family, who were very, very conservative people, and I think for people particularly who live closer to the attacks, like it was just this period of um, like post-traumatic stress for the entire country. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, 
the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think a good amount of research backs up the fact that this it had this kind of, and I think it is hard to understand if you weren't there, impact on people. I found a Pew Research study that I'm going to quote from now. Uh, our first survey following the attacks went into the field just days after 9-11. From September 13th to 17th, 2001, a sizable majority of adults said they felt depressed. Nearly half said they had difficulty concentrating, and a third said they had trouble sleeping. It was an era in which television was still the public's dominant news source. 90% said they got most of their news about the attacks from television, compared with just 5% who got their news online. And the televised images of death and destruction had a powerful impact. Around 9 in 10 Americans agreed with the statement, I feel sad when watching TV coverage of the terrorist attacks. A sizable majority, 77%, found it frightening to watch, but most did so anyway. Fear was widespread, not just in the days immediately after the attacks, but throughout the fall of 2001. Most Americans said they were very, 28%, or somewhat, 45%, worried about another attack. When asked a year later to describe how their lives changed in a major way, about half the adults said they felt more afraid, more careful, more distrustful, or more vulnerable as a result of the attacks. And I think you can't separate this because the main people we're talking about here, when we're talking about the response to this, when we're talking about the people who got to make decisions, it's boomers, right? Which is not all that different from how it is today, but even it was even more so boomers then. And you know, my parents and the people of their generation are all children of the Cold War. They both grew up, my parents, on different military bases. Um, and I can remember... You know, my dad told me stories about doing like duck and cover drills as a kid, like literally hiding under a desk to get ready for an atomic bomb. Um, his family like went out into the countryside during the Cuban Missile Crisis to hide because they were afraid all the cities were going to get nuked. And this is not these are not uncommon experiences. So you have to think like all of the all of the adults 
were either very close to this period or had spent most of their formative years like constantly scared of being murdered by a nuclear weapon. Um, there have been clinical like studies and stuff that have shown that that fear of nuclear annihilation is a major factor in anxiety. Like I, it's not ever been properly, I think, explained how much that fucked up that generation. But what you had is all of these people who had spent the first couple of decades of their lives living with the sort of Damocles over their heads. And then the war ends, right? The Cold War ends, the USSR falls apart, and suddenly people aren't talking about nuclear warfare for the first time in anybody's memory. Um, and I think for most of that generation, they felt safe for the first time. There was this kind of celebration that was pretty bipartisan, that capitalism and democracy had triumphed and that like this kind of horror that had stalked through their childhood had been defeated. You know, when people like uh, Francis Fukuyama talked about the end of history, what Fukuyama meant was that liberal democracy was kind of, in his eyes, the end of the evolutionary road for states, which yeah. is a flawed idea. But the interpretation that I think people like my parents had was that we didn't need to worry anymore, right? Like yeah. that that's the end of history, right? Our way of life had won and we like we we didn't need to worry. And in 9-11 happens, and suddenly this decade or so of relief from that all ends in a minute. And all of that fear that they lived with their whole lives came roaring back with abandon. 9-11 was like the emotional equivalent of splitting an atom. And and the energy yeah. that was released by that is going to be used for something, right? I, I, I want to kind of touch on that a little bit because I mean, I obviously don't remember the 90s because yeah. I wasn't there. And it is such a fascinating idea to me of like this time where neoliberalism kind of reached their paradise. Like like we did yeah. it, we, could, we, 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 we did the thing, we found the spot. And how that, you know, talk about like the edge of chaos theory, how it was built up to this super high point, and then it all because because it, it got so high, it then immediately crumbled, yeah, um, and shot down. And th th there's this uh, thing that um, uh, one of my favorite uh, writers, Grant Morrison, talks about how 9/11 kind of became this moment where the world of imagination and the world of like the lowest material visceral reality uh, crashed into each other. Um, and he says, uh, quote, the, the collapse expressed itself in the material world when the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center were reduced to dust by determined extremists. When this event occurred, reality and fiction began their slow collapse into one another. After the fall of the towers, quote unquote, reality became more fictional and quote unquote, fiction became more realistic. Think plausible, realistic superhero movies like the Dark Knight films, uh, fake news, deep fakes, AR, uh, VR, and the rise of magical thinking. Um, and I would extrapolate that out to like stuff like you know QAnon, um, and yep. you know the the how just these images that we thought were only viewable in film and television um, became. Descended down onto the onto the dirtiest, most visceral material plane, um, and then things that were fake, like this idea, of, like the perfect '90s. That's gonna be. This is gonna yeah. continue, continue like this forever. That fiction, uh, it felt almost more real. Like it, like that 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 should have been what's real, and it's not anymore. Yeah, it it feels like there's an alternate, and I think that's part of why liberals are still so goddamn in love with the West Wing. And by the way, I talk about liberals. My parents, who loved Ronald Reagan more than life itself, watched every episode of that show. They thought it was wonderful. And the Republicans are always portrayed very sympathetically on the West Wing, right? It's yeah. very much this noble opposition sort of idea. Um, and uh, the the that I, I think there's something in that, that there's this almost sense that we've been locked out of the right reality. And that's yeah. that's what you know, that's what liberals are constantly hearkening back to with with 9-11. But it's also or with a with stuff like the West Wing, but it's also like what conservatives it, I think for a while they were looking for that. I think that's what George W. Bush promised and failed to deliver. Yep. Um, it's what they were hoping to get with Romney. And when that didn't happen, I think part of what's going on with Trump is this desire. Part of the desire to burn it all down is the inability to get back to this imagined prelapsarian yeah, world. If you're talking about the collapse of reality and fiction going into each other, that's what Donald Trump represents. He is this yeah. so fictional person that in order to meet this new world where reality and fiction are the same thing, you need somebody that under that that represents that. Yeah. Um, so they turned to him because he he was meeting the way they, they saw the world was going. They, the reality and yep. fiction are going into each other, so you're gonna get the reality television 
president yeah. um, who, 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 who kind of embodies that essence on a very, very visceral level. And I, I think that's part of why when you have 9-11 happen, you have all of this energy released, both parties kind of come together in this idea that the United States should strike back uh, and that we were at war. It's rightly pointed out by people that particularly the protests against the Iraq war were massive, and they were. They were historically large. But President Bush was also the most popular president of our lifetime, briefly. And it's because people were in line behind this idea that we need to hit someone. Well, and, and, and I think something that's important about this that's completely forgotten is that the invasion of Afghanistan, there was like no protests. Mm -mm. There were there were a few, but like yeah. the, the left imploded. Like yeah. here's I'm, I'm going to read a quote from Doug Henwood. This is an attack on us. There is a near certainty that something will be done soon. Clearly, considerable use of force will have to be used to capture these motherfuckers. Um, it, like a Adolf Reed is like talking about how like there's gonna have to be military action like a, a bunch of the people from like who like the the old school like anti-vietnam war protesters mm -hmm. like from sds are like well we don't oppose all wars we just oppose bad wars so like here we should go evade Afghanistan. like everyone lost their minds yeah well and i, I want to what i really the core of what i talk about today is why that happened because i i think there's on particularly kind of some of the more superficial left-wing analysis of this, this idea that like George Bush did what he did in response because he's like this Christian holy warrior. Um, and there's a couple of reasons people do this, including the fact that he once referred to the invasion of Iraq as a crusade. But as a general rule, what Bush did was not because of his Christianity and had nothing to do with any kind of conflict with Islam in particular. What it was, was the reaction of a group of a kind of fundamentalists, fundamentalists of belief in the American state, reacting to an attack on the sanctity of that kind of idea. Um, yeah. And this is, this is, you know, why all these liberals were on board, at least with, you know, the strike on Afghanistan or attacking Afghanistan. Christopher Hitchens, probably no one embodies like what happened to a lot of the left better than Hitchens. Hitchens yeah. was a well-known liberal journalist. He wrote an excoriating book about Henry Kissinger, right? He's one of these people who was criticizing the empire, who was attacking it for its excesses, for builds his career on that. And then 9-11 happens. And the first big thing he does is he puts out a massive column titled Bush's Secularist Triumph in which he argues that the war on terror is not a crusade, but a battle to keep religion and public power separate. And I want to quote now from a study published in the Journal of Political Theology by William Cavanaugh of DePaul University. It's titled, The War on Terror, Secular or Sacred? There may be some Christians who think that we are fighting for Jesus, but the battle is being won in the name of secularism. George Bush may subjectively be a Christian, but he and the U.S. armed forces have objectively done more for secularism than the whole of the American agnostic community combined, and doubled. While the left makes apologies for religious terrorists, the right supports their obliteration to protect our secular state. Secularism is not just a smug attitude. It is a possible way of democratic and pluralistic life that only became thinkable after several wars and revolutions had ruthlessly smashed the hold of clergy on the state. We are now in the middle of, n of another such war and revolution, and the liberals have gone AWOL. That's Kavanaugh's summary of uh, 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 Hitchens's article. But like, what's going on there is really interesting, because Hitchens is proceeding as an a priori assumption that the attack on the Twin Towers is an attempt by a theocracy to take over and destroy a secular state, rather than an attempt to damage economically a military enemy um, and goad it into a war that would weaken it socially militarily and economically, which is exactly what had actually happened. Yes. The liberals that Hitchens attacks, his former allies, are basically saying, don't take the bait, right? Don't do the thing that he wants you to do because it will it will lead to the results he wants to achieve. All Hitchens can see is that like Muslim extremists are scary and they want to hurt him as an atheist. Religion are, is doing things that hurt me. Yeah. So I must destroy the people who believe in this yeah. thing. Yeah. And it's interesting because everybody... All of the people who are kind of on the side of this 
civic religion, which is which is why they're responding, because their their civic religion has been attacked in this strike on the towers. They all find kind of different ways to justify it. Hitchens is a prominent atheist, so it makes sense that he kind of sees it as a fight against theocracy. If you go through a lot of footage of news anchors in the immediate wake of the attack, Garrison, you and I were doing this a couple of nights ago. There yeah. were numerous references that the Twin Towers, which were a symbol of capitalism, and that's they, why they it represent. Had been struck. Yeah. capitalist and American supremacy over yeah. capital. It's like it's it's, yeah. it's like the American supremacy of the economic system. Yeah. And, and, a sim- and, a, and like a, a reified symbol of capitalism, almost like it's like it's like an idol to yeah. like to the god of capital. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's a there's a number of different things you can find making this point. But in a column that published on 912, uh, the Washington Post editorial board wrote for three decades, the Twin Towers of New York's World Trade Center stood as the symbol of America. American economic might, as powerful an icon for capitalism as the Statue of Liberty is for freedom. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, that's, that's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. No, people but, were just but, saying this shit the day and after. The other thing that's funny about it is like, no one thought this before. Like, these are cheap fucking buildings. Like, the World Trade Center yeah, they, is like they, a license. Like, it's, yeah. it's literally, it's just a like license. It's a name that's licensed out. It's like. <laughs> that, yeah, but that doesn't, because again, what, what you. By, by saying this, when they're saying like for three decades, this was the symbol of American economic might, people, and I keep going back to my parents, but I think they represent a lot of Americans, saw the defeat of the Soviet Union as being achieved by the U.S. economy, by capital, yeah. right? And and that's the thing that ended history. That's the thing that got them to their neoliberal paradise. It's the thing that saved them from the nukes. And so by taking these towers down, bin Laden basically killed Superman, right? That's how they're reacting to it. Yeah. Um, George Bush and Christopher Hitchens and the Washington Post editorial board, they all saw their support for war not as as not based in religion. All of them would have denied this, right? Um, but Kavanaugh argues that they were motivated primarily by what he calls the civil religion of the United States, which is why I've been using that term. I'm going to quote from his paper again. The United States has its own civil religion, which, though relying on the support of Christians and undoubtedly borrowing much from Christian imagery, transcends mere sectarian religion to unite all Americans on a higher ground. Indeed, this is what makes secularism compatible with civil religion. What Robert Bella calls traditional religion is privatized, while civic rituals revolve around a generic god who underwrites America's identity and purpose in the world. In this sense, Andrew Sullivan is right. This is a religious war. The war of which 9-11 was a significant marker is not extremist and expansionist religion against a peace-loving and neutral secularist order. It is rather the violent confrontation of Islamist terrorism with the civil religion of America. American expansionism, that is, the evangelical insistence that liberal social order is the only viable kind of social order. It is what Tariq Ali has called the clash of fundamentalisms. And I think that's important because I think one area in which the left really got things wrong in sort of their interpretation of what happens in this period is seeing it as a clash between kind of Christian fundamentalists as embodied by George Bush and Islamic fundamentalists. No, no, no. The people who were leading this country, including Bush, but including most of the liberals, were America fundamentalists. They were fundamentalists in the idea of the secular American state. And so were my parents, as conservative as they were. My family was never about, you know, Christianity needing to be spread over there. It was about this this belief in America as something holy and that something holy and sacred had been struck on September 11th. I will say, I, 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 I think I... I don't know. It's easy for me to see why people think about this on the left sort of as this Christian holy war. Because, like, I grew up with a lot of people who, like, in the wake of this, who, like, really were full on into the crusade thing. Like, I had classmates who would talk about how they were going to join the military to kill all Muslims. Like, there was, I mean, like, I think this is a real thing. Sure. And I that's what I mean, that's sort of analytic wrong. That's what that's what Kavanaugh is saying, and that it's kind of scaffolded on Christianity. But like, that's fun, uh, fundamentally like the fact that there are some people who are going in there being like, "This is finally a religious crusade." Doesn't mean that's like what the leadership of the country is doing. And as I'm about to get to, I think that's part of why we get Trump and the current Christian extremist surge is that uh, it's a reaction to how kind of the neocons go with this because. For the neocons, this isn't really about this isn't about Christianity is something you use in this fight, but like that's not what you're fighting for here. Um, 
And I think there's there's a good amount of evidence for the fact that Americans identified something as being like holy about the Twin Towers, particularly after the attack. Um, from Kavanaugh's study in Public Theology, quote, an August 2010 poll found that 56% of Americans regard Ground Zero as sacred ground, and a slightly larger majority opposes construction of a mosque nearby for this region. A sacred aura surrounds the identity of the nation that was attacked on that day, and the attacks concentrated that sacredness in a particular location and time. It is not necessary to go back to the more famously evangelical George W. Bush to make the link between piety and 9-11. In his speech at Ground Zero last September 11th, 2010, Barack Obama talked about gathering at this sacred hour on hallowed ground and talked about how those who were not only killed but sacrificed in the attacks. God was invoked, of course, but it was a generic God who belonged to no particular faith because, as Obama made clear, the victims themselves were of many faiths. Yeah, this is, I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting if you're actually trying to analyze this and you want to see kind of the degree to which why I think it's important to look at how people treated the space itself is sacred, is how actual religion responded in the wake of 9-11 and how Americans responded to religion in the wake of 9-11. Um, because, you know, it says there about 56% of the country see this as like hallowed ground in some way. Um, and I, I think there's evidence that people kind of rose up to defend this civic religion more than they actually did their real faiths. Um, and this is because primarily the reaction on a on a population basis to September 11th is that religiosity in the United States continued to decline, right? There's a public idea that it led to this like surge of people coming back to the church and getting religious again, but there's really no demographic evidence to back that up. And I want to quote from an article I found in Christianity Today. For a few weeks after 9-11, people packed the pews, but it soon became apparent there was not a great awakening or a profound change in America's religious practices, as Frank M. Newport, Gallup poll editor-in-chief, told the New York Times in November of 2001. Barna Group confirmed that conclusion in 2006. It tracked 19 dimensions of spirituality and beliefs and found none of those 19 indicators were statistically different from pre-attack measures. In other words, the 9-11 attacks didn't put American Christians on a trajectory towards more orthodox beliefs or more consistent habits of prayer, church attendance, or scripture reading. Insofar as we can measure matters of faith, the decline of American religiosity continued apace. Spiritually speaking, said Barna's David Kinneman, it's as if nothing significant ever happened. And that's something evangelicals have had to grapple with ever since. The U.S. did not turn back to God demographically. And while hateful attacks against Muslims surged, you have to acknowledge that a lot of those were from people who were more or less secular um, in the traditional sense. And this is part of why so many of the online atheists set uh, sided with the alt-right in 2015 and 2016, right? It's because there a lot of those people, um, while they would have described themselves as an opposition to Christianity as well, were very much a part of the same civic religion as everybody else and were willing to engage in racist attacks against members of a religion as a result of that. You know, when, when you look at the fact that a majority of Americans saw Ground Zero as sacred and opposed building a mosque because of that, a decent chunk of those people are not Christians who oppose the building of a mosque mosque, right? They're a-religious or they're atheist, and they oppose the building of a mosque because they still see Islam as an enemy. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season... 
we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. But Americans were not moved to embrace religion by the attacks um, and the deterioration of our sense of security that followed. And I think that evangelicals have never been able to actually accept this. A 2013 Barna Group survey found that most Americans, but particularly born-again Christians, believe 9-11, quote, made people turn back to God. And this, again, has led to kind of a fetishization of the period right after 9-11. Um, the writer of that Christianity Today article I cited earlier theorizes, quote, my first suggestion is what we thought was hope wasn't lost at all. It was less Christian trust in character and redemption of God than American optimism coated with not quite biblical bromides that when there's bad, good will follow. Americans love to believe that everything happens for a reason and that after a short period of time, sorrow will always turn into joy and suffering into sanctifications. Uh, we quote Romans 8.28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and incorrectly interpret it to mean that everything that happens to us will also somehow work out okay. And I think that they're onto something here. And this really, this goes back to what Kavanaugh was saying about how this civil religion is kind of grafted on over the bones of Christianity, right? Um, and it's, it's, there's so much, part of what's interesting to me here is that, well, I think it's, it's worthwhile that he quotes Romans 8, 28. I have to think that this, this belief that Americans have that everything happens for a reason is at least as undergirded by like Disney as it is with scripture. It's undergirded by the way we tell stories, by the way fiction yeah. works in our society, which is a, a very a unique to us, right? Every culture does not tell stories the same way. Well, and I, and I think like if you want to trace that out too, like I think that's part of the reason why people are so unbelievably into conspiracy theories here. Yeah. If everything needs to have a reason that it's part of an overarching grand narrative that ties everything together. 
Yeah. And it obviously, again, I don't want to like underplay, and perhaps we should do an episode of maybe Behind the Bastards on the reaction of the religious right to 9-11, which was nuts and it was, vi- vicious I, yeah. and horrific. I'm not, I'm not trying to deny that. But I think one of the things that happens in this period is they grow increasingly infuriated that that is not shared by a majority of the country, that it doesn't bring a religious revival, right? That that doesn't follow September 11th. Um, now, it is kind of, there's a couple of things that are interesting here. Um, one of them is that uh, the apocalyptic Christian believers, they do have kind of this this in with the Bush administration. We know that at one point, a bunch of apocalyptic like Christian representatives, like people who are kind of heading churches and stuff that believe, there's this belief among certain Christians that you need to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and bring about the end of days and all this stuff. There's a bunch of shit that has to happen in Palestine in order for the apocalypse to come. And they're trying to get US presidents to make it happen. This is why Trump made some of the calls that he made was to deliberately like give those people a win. Um, which is why some of the shit that happened in Jerusalem during the Trump administration um, was able to happen. All of that stuff is stuff that they went to George Bush. They had a two-hour meeting with him and Elliot Abrams and a bunch of his staff uh, where these representatives of kind of like the Pentecostal movement tried to get him to carry out this wish list policy of acts around Israel and Iraq to help them bring about the rapture. And the Bush administration didn't really do any of that. They have to take the meeting, right? They bring these guys in. They don't give them what they want. It's not until Trump Trump that a lot of these guys get what they want. And what you what happens here cuz you've got this this death cult Christian group who see this as a crusade and who want a war with Islam and they're constantly frustrated by the fact that even though he's supposed to be their guy, Bush doesn't go all the way for them, right? And this is part of why his military adventurism gets criticized effectively by guys like Trump who win the evangelical right because the evangelicals say like, well, if we're not going to have a holy war, then like, what was this stuff? We just wasted a bunch of money and a bunch of treasure and a bunch of young men for nothing over there. Um, And that's part of like what Trump wins on. Now, these two factions, these neocons, the guys who wind up, by the way, the guys who are sort of on the civic religion side of the response to 9-11 are all the people who wind up running the Lincoln Project, right? When you're talking about the Republicans on that side of Thing. Yeah, and then the part the folks who break off the evangelicals, the people who want a holy war, that's who winds up making the core of Trump's support. Yeah, um, and yeah, and that's uh, I, I think mostly where I'm going to leave us for today on nine twelve next week. We'll have another special episode about Glenn Beck's nine twelve project that will be kind of the finishing of this. But I want to end because we're talking about why I did this and why I started by talking about jokes about nine eleven is because I think understanding understanding the attack on the towers as like an attack on what would have effectively become a god to a lot of Americans, even if they didn't realize it, right? The sanctity of this kind of neoliberal capitalist order and its, 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 um, its historic inevitability, right? Uh, the fact that that's what was going on that 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 was so dear to people that justified so much violence 20 years of of war of bombings millions of deaths is part of why i think there's a value in joking about 911 which is not to say that what happened wasn't terrible 3 3000 and change innocent people were murdered um in a in a truly horrific way if you actually sit down and watch the footage the people falling out of the buildings it's a nightmare if you think about stuff like flight 93 it's it's really stirring you have these people who one moment they're heading to like see their families or go on a work trip or something they're on a fucking plane an experience i'm sure everybody has where you're just like trying to get from a to b and in the space of like a few minutes they have to all decide they're going to charge a bunch of terrorists, fight in hand-to-hand combat, and then pilot a plane into the ground in order to stop it from killing other people. That's that's powerful stuff. Um, what what I think is important is desacralizing it because there's nothing sacred about mass murder, um, and there's nothing there's we shouldn't see what happened there as anything but what it is, which is a tragic. Um, a tragic act of violence against innocent people. But taking it as like an attack on our soul, as an attack on like our our collective God, um, when you start to do that, again, it, it kind of justifies any sort of violence. Like there's nothing, 
there's nothing that's off the table. And in in the first few years after 9-11, there was nothing off the table. Um, and we're we're never getting back to the world that we had before, which is ultimately like what all that violence was about, right? All of everything terrible that was done in the wake of 9-11 was justified, even if people didn't say it, in the desire to get back to where we were in the 90s, right? In their heads, in their sense of security. I'm not talking about anything as like coarse as economic projections. I'm talking about in the sense of like optimism and, and basic security. And I think one of the people who got this best in the immediate wake of the attack uh, was Hunter S. Thompson, who you know, was still alive at that point for a couple of years. And he wrote a column, I think it was for ESPN.com, because that's who he was writing for in those days. He, his career was well past its peak. Um, but he wrote probably the best thing anyone wrote a week after 9-11. And I'm going to read you the end of that now. We are at war now, according to President Bush, and I take him at his word. He also says this war might last for a very long time. Generals and military scholars that will tell you that eight or ten years is actually not such a long time in the span of human history, which is no doubt true. But history also tells us that ten years of martial law and a wartime economy are going to feel like a lifetime to people who are in their twenties today. The poor bastards of what will forever be known as Generation Z are doomed to be the first generation of Americans who will grow up with a lower standard of living than their parents enjoyed. This is extremely heavy news, and it will take a while for it to sink in. The 22 babies born in New York City while the World Trade Center burned will never know what they missed. The last half of the 20th century will seem like a wild party for rich kids compared to what's coming now. The party's over, folks. Yeah, that is kind of the feeling. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Growing up in the early 2000s yeah. and not not knowing, not never actually experiencing the 90s. I mean, yeah. In some ways, you know, 9-11 feels very similar to me as something like Pearl Harbor. Like, they're both yeah. things that happened, I guess, before I was around. And it just, they created the world that I already existed in. Like, it never, it never, like, it, you know, it, 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 it never changed the world I was in. It just, yeah. it just became the world that I was in. Yeah, for me, 9-11 is my first memory. Like, that is the first thing wow. I remember. And... Uh, yeah, we got exactly the world that you would expect yeah. from your first memory being 9-11. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, again, for me, I think the thing I identify most is that little clip I played from South Park where one of the kids is like, do you remember when everything didn't suck? And he's like, not really. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, go out, um, tell a tasteful joke about 9-11. And uh, try not to worship the state. It doesn't end well. <laughs> it Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.